um, one of the lines in that song struck me in a way that it never has before. I don't know that I've even really thought about it before, but it's that line where we're singing about God's mercy and it says it's stronger than darkness. Um, and I was just sitting there thinking, we live in a dark world, don't we? Um, and it seems like the darkness is encroaching more and more all the time. And I don't know if that's just because we're more aware of it because of social media and the internet and you know, all, the, all the things, that, all the ways we get our information. However, it's very obvious that we live in a dark world. And in the midst of that darkness, God's mercy is stronger than that darkness. And so let, the thing I thought was for us as believers, we are to be a light in that darkness. And the way we are a light is by being people who are characterized by mercy. We want what's best for those who are caught up in darkness. We want to be gracious and kind, and we want to extend the offer of the gospel to them. And we want to be people, and we need to be people, who are not defined by division and anger and hate and all of the things that characterize the world around us, but we're defined by mercy, and we're defined by grace. And that's who we are, because mercy is stronger than darkness. And so I thought of that in a way that I never had before, and I, I would encourage you with that and challenge you with that this morning. Uh, we were certainly trying to make some connections yesterday and to reach out into the dark world uh, that we live in and uh, hopefully make some opportunities for the gospel through our outreach that we had yesterday. And if you were not here, um, it was, there were way more people here than we, thought, we ever thought would be here. Um, it was uh, a little bit chaotic. Uh, we, I don't know how many, we were expecting 150 people, and we easily had more than 500 come through. Um, so thank you to those of you who participated in that. We were able to hand out a lot of candy, a lot of hot dogs, and also a lot of information about WBC. Uh, I know some of you were able to invite family and friends, and they came uh, to that. And so hopefully that'll provide an opportunity for further discussions and hopefully an invitation to participate in something else here at WBC, maybe a church service as well. And so uh, thank you. Kristen Johnson headed that up and did a fantastic job. And I don't want to get into a list of names um, because so many of you were involved in that and devoted your time and energy to it. But um, it, was, it was really a good thing and, uh, and well-received. And uh, you guys did a great job with that. So thank you for serving the Lord by serving our community, um, providing an opportunity for some fun and uh, to hopefully make some connections as well. Um, last thing I'll say before we get to our text this morning is if you did not, if you're in the habit of getting the sermon questions and you looked for them this morning and they were not there, that was my fault. I printed them out very late and so they are there now. So if you want to get up and get uh, a copy of those, that is totally fine. If you don't and want to wait till the end, you are welcome to do that as well. I get it. So you can open up to Exodus 33, 33 and 34. That's where we're going to be this morning. I have no doubt for each person here that this past week that there has been some circumstance, some concern that has been regularly on your mind. I know that each person here is facing different challenges in life, some bigger than others, but each person is facing some difficulty and some challenge, and I know how this works. When you're, when you're facing something, when something is happening in your life that is difficult or is uncomfortable or is causing some level of anxiety, 
we all tend to ruminate on that thing and think about it. It's the type of thing that if you have a few moments where it's just peaceful and quiet that your mind drifts back to that circumstance and it sort of ruins your peaceful moment there and you start to think about it again. Something, probably for most of you, has snagged your mind like a fishing hook snags a fish in the mouth and you just can't get away from it and it seems to have a hold on your brain over the course of the past week. Now, I'm not here to tell you this morning that you shouldn't have something like that or that you shouldn't be thinking about that pressing issue or that circumstance, but what I am here to do this morning is to ask you to consider letting another hook get lodged into your brain. I want to add hooks to your brain, not take them away this morning. And the hook that I want to get lodged into your brain so that you think about it at least for a few moments every day, or when you're sitting there quietly, your brain drifts back to this reality, is the reality of God's undeserved mercy in your life. Just imagine what would happen if every day you spent a few moments just sitting there and thinking about how incredibly gracious and merciful God has been to you as a sinner. And just let that hook get lodged in your brain and, and pull you back to that mercy at least once a day. Let me show you this quote I found this week when thinking about this. As when things are cold, we bring them to the fire to heat and melt. So bring we our cold hearts to the fire of the love of Christ. Consider we of our sins against Christ and of Christ's love toward us. Dwell upon this meditation. Think what great love Christ hath showed unto us and how little we have deserved. This will make our hearts to melt and be as pliable as wax before the sun. And this pastor, Richard Sibbs, makes the point here that dwelling meditating on, ruminating, going back to the mercy and the undeserved love of God will change your heart. This is the thing, this is the, the practice that will begin to alter the way you feel and the way you think and the way you approach life. You want to change your disposition, your natural tendencies? Think about mercy. You want to be a more encouraged, built-up person? Think about mercy and grace. Do you want to experience more joy in your life? Consider the fact that the sovereign God of the universe has in his kindness shown you undeserved mercy for the sole reason that he wants to. That's it. And because he's good and he's gracious. Let that get lodged into your thinking and pull you back to God's mercy every single day. And I want to help you to think more about his mercy and give you some ammunition for your thinking. I want to lodge a hook of his mercy into your brain this morning as we go back to this passage in Exodus 33 and 34 and as we continue to think about and to talk about God's mercy made known to the Israelites. And so we're looking here at this story of the golden calf and the aftermath of this, which takes place in 32, Exodus 32 to 34, it comes as sort of a, a break in the, the description of the tabernacle. 
the, the, what should happen in building the tabernacle and in the actual building of the tabernacle. This happens right in between this. And so they sin and the golden calf happens and then there's Moses' intercession. And this whole section that we're looking at, 33.7 to 34, the end of the chapter, we're seeing this. Seven features of God's divine mercy or of divine mercy that God has made known. That's what we're looking at. We started this last week and we will finish it up today. Now keep in mind here, and this is important for you to remember as we're looking at these features of mercy, that we're specifically here talking about God's mercy made known to the nation of Israel. This is vital that you keep this in mind. We can certainly learn and make application from what we're seeing here, but it's important because of what we're going to do later that you remember we're talking about this situation and this circumstance at Mount Sinai and how God has made mercy known to them. Now, the first one of these, you can see it on the screen here, the first feature is that it is a personal mercy. And so the entire golden calf incident is broken up into two pieces. The first part of it has to do with Israel's sin, and the second part has to do with Moses' intercession for them and God's response of mercy and grace. This portion begins, the second portion, in 33, 7 through 11, and it talks about Moses' very personal and close relationship with God. Look at verse 11 as this is described. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so this describes this relationship that God has brought Moses into. It is a very personal and a very close relationship, but it doesn't stop there. His mercy made known to Moses as an individual is meant to expand out to include others. And this is the second feature. So God's mercy is always personal, but it always wants to go out and be proclaimed to a broader audience. It's meant to be displayed. This is in 33 verses 12 through 17. And so Moses asks God here what his plan will be going forward. Who's going to go with us to the promised land? And he wants God's presence with them as they go. And so God begins to have this conversation with Moses here. And the heart of this interaction is in verses 15 and 16. Look there. And he said to him, Moses, if your presence said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known, right? How will people know about your mercy and your character? How will it be displayed that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God has a purpose for Israel, and that purpose is that he will start with them, and then the knowledge of him will go out throughout the world through them. And so after this request, God agrees to go with them to the promised land, And Moses wants to know God more intimately. He wants to have a greater knowledge of God. And that brings us to our third feature. It is a personal mercy, a displayed mercy, and a sovereign mercy. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. 
Moses said, please show me your glory. He wants to know God in a more intimate and deeper way. He wants to see God's character in its fullness. There's some indication you'll see in a minute here that Moses wants to see God face to face, as close as he can be to God. Verse 19, God responds, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The point here is that God does what he wants to do, and this heightens his mercy because he is the one who decides whom to extend compassion to and who not to. He shows compassion to whoever he wants to. The Apostle Paul actually picks up this verse and quotes it in Romans chapter 9 when he's talking about God's sovereign election of individuals to salvation. He says this in that discussion, so then it depends. The salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not dependent on you or me and our work and our goodness and our effort. We don't get into heaven. We don't have a relationship with God and we don't know him because we try a little harder when we read our Bible a little more. The only reason that we know him at all is because of his mercy. Salvation doesn't come to you or to me because we were put in the right social circumstances or we maneuvered our way to hear the gospel. It comes to us because God has shown you mercy through the gospel because he's God and because he can. And so now we get into the part that we didn't cover last week. God points out that his mercy is sovereign and then he continues to clarify what this mercy looks like. And here's our fourth feature of divine mercy. All of these are meant to show the different aspects and facets of this amazing quality of the God who we serve, God of mercy. It's a holy mercy. Listen to 33 verses 21, actually verse 20 to 23. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you, can, you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This should be familiar to you, right? We've seen this before. This is how it has to happen in God's relationship with human beings. God is holy. And so even someone of the status of Moses cannot come into direct contact with God and see him in all of his glory and view him face to face. And Moses can't do that because he's a sinner. He's defiled as a human being. But what I want you to notice here is this is both mercy and a holy mercy. It's both of those at the same time. God is going to reveal more of himself to Moses. That's what's so shocking about this. Moses asks and God says, yep, I will give you all that I can. I will reveal myself to you. I want you to know me. That's the merciful part. But then he has to do it in a way that is guarded because of his holiness. It has to be a veiled or a controlled revelation. The book of Hebrews talks about this 
related to our growth in sanctification and holiness. The author of Hebrews says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This passage, interestingly enough, is in a section of Hebrews that is encouraging believers to persevere in the faith. He's talking to believers here and encouraging them to stick with it and to cling to Christ and to make it in their faith. And the point of this text is that you have to grow in holiness and godliness that has to take place if ultimately one day you are going to see the Lord and stand before him. Now you can get into a whole discussion about how salvation, justification, and sanctification relate to one another, and sanctification always flows from salvation and justification, but the point is it flows from it. It does happen, and growth in holiness is required in order to see the Lord. It will take place in believers. This takes us to our fifth feature. This is the heart of the text here. This is what the whole thing has been building toward. It is an abounding mercy. It's the heart of the whole passage. So Moses has made his request. He's interceded for Israel. God has promised to go with them. God has told Moses, I will reveal more of myself to you. And God begins to prepare Moses to have this experience, to see his glory and to have God's goodness pass before him. And the way he does this is he commands Moses to come back up the mountain. Remember, Moses had gone down because Israel was doing their very sinful thing with the golden calf. Moses had to go down and take care of that. Now he's had this conversation and God calls him back up the mountain. And as he calls him back up, he tells him to make two more stone tablets. Look at chapter 34, verses 1 to 4. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Now, God's not sort of poking Moses in the eye here because he broke the tablets and saying, look what you did. Remember, remember, Moses broke the tablets because he was symbolically showing that Israel had broken the covenant with God. And so right here, the covenant is not in there. It, 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 there is not a covenant relationship between God and Israel at this point because it has been broken and the tablets were broken. And so God tells Moses, that's what happened But in his mercy, he's going to reinstitute the covenant. Look at verse 2. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up. We see God's holiness again. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And so God is going to, in his mercy, reinstitute the covenant that he had made with Israel. And in the midst of this, he is going to proclaim his name and his glory to Moses so that as he's remaking this covenant by his mercy, they can know who he is to a greater 
depth and a greater degree. Look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God is going to proclaim his name to Moses here. Remember, God had told Moses back in chapter 3, all the way back when he first met him at the burning bush, Moses had asked, who is it that I should tell the Israelites sent me to them? And God said, this name, I am that I am, Yahweh, the Lord. And so Moses had known the name itself, and Moses had no doubt communicated that name to the elders and to the people of Israel. They knew the name. But one of the things Moses is wondering here in all of his interactions with I am, with Yahweh, with the Lord is, who exactly is this Yahweh? What sort of an individual is he? What sort of a person is he? What qualities of character make up the Lord? That is what God is going to proclaim and tell Moses here. And you can see this at the beginning of verse 6. Look there. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. He starts his proclamation using his name twice here. And what he's going to do and all of these qualities that he's going to list is fill out the content of this name. Everything that follows is going to give a richer and a deeper and a fuller grasp of the Lord to Moses. It's going to explain why he has done what he has done with Israel in bringing them out of Egypt. This is going to explain why God has acted the way that he has in the golden calf incident. It's putting all of the pieces together for Moses and for Israel and then for us to know who this God is. So what does God tell Moses about himself? This is not some human being writing and thinking about who God is and penning it for us. This is the God of the universe revealing his character and what he wants them to and us to think about him. How does he define himself? Well, there are a number of qualities listed here, and we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this. But let me go through them with you quickly. First of all, he says in verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. God begins by stating this quality of mercy. God says, I am like a mother with a weak and a needy child. I have tender compassion for my people. Next, he says that he is a God who is gracious. He is kind. That's the right word to use here. He is just kind. Think of a person who has a superior rank and who encounters someone who is of a lesser social standing or a lesser rank, and the superior gives to the lesser something that is completely undeserved. That's grace. That's who God is. He loves to give of himself and give good things to those who are of lesser rank who don't deserve it. Next, he's a God who is slow to 
anger. Maybe you've heard this before, but this word is very picturesque. It gives the picture of someone sucking air in through their nostrils. It literally means long of nostril. It's like God has a reason to get mad, and he very slowly breathes in. And it takes him a very long time to breathe all the way in. He breathes deeply and long at wrongdoing. He doesn't boil over quickly in anger. He doesn't have an outburst of rage. He's not reckless. You could even, I think, use the word indulgent here. He's patient. Yes, he gets angry over sin, rightfully so. It is his righteousness and holiness that requires him to get angry over sin. And you can anger him, but as we've seen, it happens slowly. That's God. That's how he defines himself. Notice the next two descriptions here. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love. The same Hebrew word there is translated steadfast love twice. It's one word in Hebrew. Let's talk about that word, and then we'll talk about the adjectives, abounding and keeping. The idea in this word, and it's a very important word in the Old Testament, is that God is a God who is loyal and faithful in his covenantal love. When he makes a commitment to someone, he keeps that commitment and his love does not change and does not fade away. Notice the two adjectives that are used to describe his covenantal steadfast love. The first one is that he is abounding in steadfast love. It's over the top. There's more and more to go around. Massive amounts of steadfast love. There's tons of it to meet needs. And not only is he abounding in it, but he keeps his steadfast love. He protects it and he preserves it, which is one of the reasons that he has responded to Israel here the way that he has, because he protects his relationship with them, his commitment to them, and he will not let a third party come in to that covenant commitment. He is passionate about his relationship with his people, and he will do whatever it takes to maintain that relationship and to cultivate that relationship. Verse 7. More description, over the top. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, and look at this, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. To forgive, first of all, is to lift or carry something away. What does God carry away? Well, there are three different Hebrew words used here to describe the human problem. All three of these words give a different perspective on human sin. They come at it from a different angle. All of them describe a different nuance of our problem of sin. And so by using all three of these words, which are the main three Hebrew words to describe the human problem of sin, what God is saying here is that he is a God who forgives the entire scope of human sinfulness. You've done it, 
He can forgive it. Everything fits into one of these three categories, and sometimes all three of them, and God is ready to lift those sins and transgressions and iniquities and carry them away from you. Now, this is an amazing picture of a God who is kind and merciful and gracious and slow to anger. And here's the thing, as you and I, as sinful human beings, hear God describe himself like this, as a God who is slow to anger and gracious and forgiving, and as a a tender mother is passionate about her needy child and her weak child, as we hear God described this way as sinful human beings, it would be very easy and very natural for us to think, well, that's fantastic. I can sin and God will just overlook it. He will forgive it, and I won't be held accountable for it. And God wants to make clear here that that is not the type of God he is, and that is not how we define his mercy. And that's why he says what he says in verse 7, the rest of it. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And what that means is that as people continue to sin in the same pattern, in the same manner as their predecessors, God brings judgment on them. His mercy does not shrug off sin. And so here's the tension that we talked about a few weeks ago, right? You've got a God who's willing to forgive everything, all the, the whole scope of human sin, and at the same time, you've got a God who judges the guilty and who won't let human sin off the hook. And so think about this situation with Israel and the golden calf. God's going to reinstitute this covenant with them. He is incredibly merciful, and Israel can bank on God's mercy to deal with their sin, but at the same time, they can't imagine that God is going to just excuse their sin or not deal with it. And this is the pattern that you see throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? This is the same thing that happens over and over and over again. This tension goes right down the heart of the Old Testament. Think about the book of Judges. This is a classic example of this. What happens in Judges? You have this cycle that just spins and spins and spins throughout the whole book of Judges. Israel sins. The same sort of sin they did here with the golden calf. They sin by idolatry. It's pretty rough because the consequences of that sin. And so Israel cries out to God in their sin. God is merciful and slow to anger and gracious and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love and commitment. And so, because he's that type of God, he sends a deliverer, a judge, to them. And he rescues them. And the people rejoice and they're happy for a few years. And then they go right back to their idolatry. And the whole cycle happens again and again and again. And there's always that tension. God is merciful. He's patient. He's steadfastly loyal to his covenant, but his people are sinful. And he has to deal with that sin. And there's always that tension. And the people's hearts are never able to change so that they don't go back to that sin. And their sin is ultimately not dealt with fully. 
And so you think in the Old Testament of the tension that is described here as the resolution at the end of a song, that chord that brings everything together, and you sort of feel at the end of the song like, ah, that was a nice ending. That resolution is missing in the Old Testament. It's just not there. The Old Testament leaves it hanging. But when you turn to the New Testament, Jesus Christ magnificently resolves that tension. He is the chord that brings the sweet resolution and harmony to that tension that begins here. And let me show you how. If you want to open your Bible to Romans 3, you can. If not, I will put it on the screen. You can see our problem here in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the human problem. But then, right after that problem here, you get this statement of God's grace and mercy toward sinful human beings and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so if you stop with verse 24, then you might think, sweet, it's a gift to us. God can just be merciful to sinners after all. And he can freely give us salvation, and he can freely deal with our sin, and we can have redemption for our sin. Maybe, you might think, in the Old Testament, God could have just been merciful without bringing justice. Tension's gone. Not so fast. Something has to happen to resolve this tension. And Jesus is able to resolve this tension, and he is able to, in verse 24, be our redemption because of what it says in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus can be our redemption, and he can bring together mercy and justice, and he can resolve that tension because he is the propitiation. He is the satisfaction of God's just wrath over sin by his blood. The price has been paid, the tension is resolved, and now you are a recipient of mercy and justice has been satisfied. Notice the second part here. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. The tension in the Old Testament, right? He was a righteous God, but at the same time, he's a forbearing God and he's merciful and he had just sort of passed over them knowing the tension would be resolved. But he continues, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God can, even though you are sinful and broken and come into this world in rebellion against God, God can justify you and justify me, declare us to be righteous when we are not, because Jesus Christ was the propitiation, the satisfaction of his wrath by his blood. 
And so God can be completely righteous, completely holy, and completely just. And at the same time, he can justify and declare righteous you and me who are sinners. Here's the tension being resolved. It's come together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go back to Exodus 34 because... Moses sees this revelation of God, of himself, and he has the appropriate response, which it is an amazing revelation that Moses receives here, even apart from what we've just seen in the New Testament. Look at verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. God agrees to this, and he renews the covenant. And this is the sixth. One more, and we'll get to it very quickly. He's a covenantal mercy. Look at verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Then, when we won't read it, verses 11 through 28, God goes over some of the main requirements and stipulations of the covenant. These are representative of the whole covenant, and he's reiterating them now and gives special attention to some that Israel would need to remember after having committed the sin with the golden calf. He's very clear on idolatry again, but emphasizes it maybe even more so this time. And so then Moses has been back up on the mountain here. He receives this. He's up there another 40 days and 40 nights, and the covenant is renewed with the people. Look at verse 28 of chapter 34. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so God in his mercy has renewed his covenant with Israel and this sets us up for the rest of the book and to head out into the rest of the Old Testament. But before we get there, there's a seventh feature. And I want you to notice how I phrased this. It is glorious. It's not that glorious. Here's what I mean. I'm talking about God's mercy as it is displayed here through the Old Covenant. I tried to make that point at the beginning, and you need to remember that now. Remember what has happened here. Moses has been in God's presence in a special way, and he has had a special revelation of God. God has proclaimed his glory to Moses. Moses has been in his presence more than maybe any other human ever had. He knows God in richer and deeper ways at this point. Now, we've already seen that Moses has a face-to-face relationship with God. Remember, 33, 7 through 11? That's how this passage began. But now, when we describe, when Moses describes his face-to-face relationship with God, things are different because of this revelation. Look at verse 29 through 35. I'm going to read the whole section. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. 
But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Notice this, 34 and 35. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. The old covenant had glory. It's glorious. No doubt about it. Because, why, why does it have glory? Because it reveals God's character to us. We've just seen that here. We know and we see who God is. And that's the whole purpose of this whole thing, right? That's the point of the book of Exodus. Israel is rescued to know him, to have a relationship with him. They're rescued to be brought into a covenant with him. And Moses had been brought close to God. And so the old covenant does have glory. It reveals God's character. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the Old Covenant and about this passage with Moses in 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the law, the ministry of righteousness, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Here's what I think Paul is getting at. There is glory in the old covenant because we see God's character in it. But as we just saw in Romans, the full and richest explanation of God's character and his ways and his glory comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work in the new covenant. Remember this verse that we began with a couple weeks ago. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The veil has been taken away in Christ. Now we see the tension in the Old Testament. We see it resolved in the New Testament. And we see it resolved through the work and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you see this glory, when you see the character of God, here's the point of this verse, it transforms you and changes you as Christ is proclaimed and as the gospel is proclaimed. And this is the ministry that Paul was given. And so he continues on. We're almost there. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then look at this. I love verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Beautiful connection back to Moses' request to see the glory of God, to see the face of God. Now we see all of that clearly through the knowledge of God in the glory of the gospel and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God in his mercy has given us himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we see his justice and his mercy come together. And so I'll go back to where we started. And I'll just say this. Nothing is more worthy of your mental time and your mental energy. Nothing is more worthy of your meditation for even a few moments a day to turn your thoughts to the rich bringing together of justice and mercy through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the gift of the gospel for the the fact that we who are sinners can be justified because of the propitiation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have your mercy and we can be justified. We can be declared righteous. We can be free from our sins. You have forgiven all of our sins and all the different varieties with which we sin. It has all been carried away fully and finally, and we can be confident in that because of what you have done, Lord Jesus, in dying by your blood on the cross for our sins and in winning the victory over death and over sin. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to be people who meditate on your mercy day in and day out. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.